All right. Welcome to episode 77, the Page of Pentacles or Princess of Discs. And if you're wondering why it's episode 77 and not episode 78, that is because we began with episode zero, The Fool. So this is, in fact, the last of our series of 78 cards. It is not the end of Fortune's Wheelhouse, and we'll talk more about that at the end of the show, uh, but it is the final card in the sequence of 78. Her name, the Princess of the Echoing Hills, the Rose of the Palace of Earth, the Princess and Empress of the Gnomes, and the Throne of the Ace of Pentacles. <laughs> yeah, quite a title. It is. And, you know, for those of you who, you know, came up through Rider Wade Smith, you may not have thought this card had much to it, but hopefully this episode will change your mind about that. The rose terminology is kind of interesting. So we see the rose in the title of the Princess of Discs or Page of Pentacles, and we see it also in the Princess of Wands or Page of Wands. Yeah, Roses that's interesting to them. think that it's the the fire and the earth princesses that are the roses and the water in the air princesses as lotuses. It really is. And in a way, the lotus thing kind of makes sense because the lotus, of course, grows in water and reaches into the air. But I think even more importantly, the wands and pentacles or discs generally have this very strong connection where, you know, they can kind of switch off between each other. They're at the top and the bottom, you know. It's yeah, the they're at the beginning, the, the first world and the last world, and then, you know, the cycle begins again. They're actually connected. They absolutely are. So it's really no coincidence that we see that matching terminology, and we'll be seeing a lot more of that as we proceed. Another thing that I thought was kind of interesting was this term princess of the echoing hills yeah me too is that right? evocative <laughs> it is it is we don't see that uh, phrase anywhere else in the titles for the courts and two things about that number one there's hills <laughs> and right. you know there's all these references to mountains and hills in in her symbolism and in her terminology and then echoing I thought was also interesting because it brought to mind the myth of Echo and Narcissus, where Echo, of course, was this mountain nymph who lost her voice, who, you know, was known for being very talkative and then had her voice taken away so that she could only repeat 
the ends of what somebody else had said. And that sort of seems to have a connection to this idea of the power of the Sphinx to keep silent, which we'll also be talking about. I was reflecting on the echoing hills as well. And one of the things I thought of, well, the there's a major, the lovers, the title of the lovers, the children of the voice. Yeah. And which is part of, you know, sort of the quadrant of constellations. Yeah, it's, of, it's one of her mm-hmm. quadrants. Also, the hills echoing, there's an idea of vibration and the silence that comes after sound as sound kind of, you know, vibrates and fades away into into silence. Right. Yeah, that's true. Oh, speaking of Children of the Voice Divine, I got the King or Knight of Swords today, as well as the Sun. What did you get? King or Knight of Swords, you said? Yeah. I got the Knight of Discs and the Priestess. Oh, wow. (laughs) So I was pretty pleased with that for today's recording. That's pretty good. Yeah, exactly. And you've got the moon. I've got the sun. We're here on the, you know, right past the eclipse. um, Yeah, I was also thinking, isn't that cool that we're recording this final minor card episode right at the culmination, right past the full moon eclipse, you know? Yeah, it is cool. It's kind of appropriate. It is cool. And you know what? We also started, uh, speaking of Children of the Voice Divine, we started solidly in Gemini season. Oh, anything else to say about her titles? Not that comes to me. So we're talking about the earthy part of Earth. And maybe we could talk briefly about these um, court cards, the four court cards that are pure expressions of the element. Yeah, definitely. That's kind of interesting. This is our last one. um, Last card that kind of personifies and exemplifies a one of the letters of the divine name, in this case, hey, final. Exactly. When we say the pure form, we're talking about the fiery part of fire, the watery part of water, the airy part of air and the earthy part of earth. The, you know, the elemental part sort of expresses the pure essence of the element, its non-physical qualities. So, for example, in the King or Knight of Wands, I guess we'd be talking in the fiery part of fire about sort of the explosive, brilliant nature of the the will. The swift moving, Mm -hmm. the initiating force of fire. Right. It's way of sort of combusting like that. Yeah. And then for the Queen of Cups, we'd be talking about the connecting or fluid, um, yet... Reflecting, reflecting as well. Reflecting, and I think one quality that Crowley ascribed to water is incompressible. (laughs) Yeah, that's cool. (laughs) Which is interesting, yeah. So that that nature of the emotional And the way water levels out as well. It's another quality. It's always going to be perfectly level, which is an interesting quality of water. Right, and of the Queen of Cups as well, that ability to kind of find the level uh, equilibrium between things. And then the Prince or Knight of Air is the uh, elastic, penetrating, <laughs> um, and uh, and also swift in its way, uh, qualities mm-hmm. of the mind, I guess. And then here we are with the earthy part of Earth. And earthy parts are generally stabilizing and grounded. So the stabilizing and grounded qualities or nature of matter, you could say. It's one thing to sort of talk about these elemental qualities in the abstract, but really one of the reasons this card is so important is because in a way it represents everything we know about the real world we perceive with our senses. It's definitely a card of the sensations of matter. 
Right. You know, whereas with every single other card in the deck, to some extent, there's reference to things that we reach for with our minds and intellects, you know, or, you know, beyond the everyday matters. This is this is the one that sort of shows us where we live. Yeah. And if you start at the the top of the tree of life and consider it an emanation, this is where you end up. This is the final right. fruiting and flowering of the 10,000 things, you know, in the universe. Now, she is, we talked a little bit about this in the introduction. She is, she, quote unquote, rules that quadrant of the heavens about the north ecliptical pole, reaching from zero degrees of Aries to 30 degrees of Gemini, uh, centered on the earthy Karubic constellation Taurus, and is and she is the throne of the Ace of Discs. So that's from the Liber Theta description. You know, so we can talk a bit about perhaps her connection to those constellations, Aries, Taurus, and Gemini. One thing that it says in the Liber Theta description that I didn't quite get, and maybe you do, is that it said Taurus represents that power of the Sphinx called to will, which I, I thought was kind of perplexing. I would have thought that this would be to keep silent. You know, in some places, there's discrepancies between which power is assigned to which quarter. But what's really interesting about that is that to will is that firepower again. And that even though I kind of resonate most with Taurus and this card as the power to keep silent, and Crowley has an essay on that as well, there are also other terminologies to draw on. And the fact that this again connects it to that fire, the the way that it restarts the cycle. Exactly. So I don't consider it totally inappropriate because it's also the card of, you know, the fulfillment of the great work, which is finding your true will. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it, that connection between the destination and purpose of the beginning. And I think if you look at that sequence of Aries, Taurus, Gemini, you know, one way to think of it is as the emperor, the hierophant, and the lovers, you can kind of think of that as the emperor as, you know, this initiating creative force, and then the hierophant as the application or the law or the teaching or, you know, trying to bring this into the world, and the lovers as giving you that moment of choice or free will. You can think of that sequence as almost like, okay, this divine figure sort of sets the rules, sets this world and its circumstances in motion. But then the human has this remarkable gift of deciding what to do. I kind of had something similar about that that mm-hmm. sequence, slightly stated differently, but it's it's almost saying the same thing. So with the emperor, we have it's the renewal of spring here in the Northern Hemisphere. It's the Aries point. It's where that cycle begins again. And we have a lot of beginnings and endings in this card. It's, you know, the the emperor that sets up the pace, starts it, sets the structure. And then with when we progress into Taurus with the Hierophant, we have him as that bridge, that human being standing between heaven and earth, which mm-hmm. I kind of see the Princess of Discs as also being a figure that does that kind of a conduit, you know, between Keter and Malkut, in a way. 
And then with the lovers, when you think of this card as the fulfillment of true will, the ripening of one's purpose on earth, the lovers is that destiny to achieve union with her prince, which is a metaphor for the holy guardian angel. Yes, this reminds me a little bit of the sequence that I think of, you know, at the top of the tree from Keter to Hokma to Bina, the lights, camera, action sequence, in the sense that, you know, the emperor is that sort of bursting forth of initial consciousness, the hierophant makes makes a duality, a divine versus human, human versus divine. And then in the lovers, it becomes self-aware in you know, so that yeah. recognition of the princess for her prince is the creation looking at itself, right? And then there's also, you know, you can also think of it as an agricultural metaphor, like in the sense that the emperor Ares breaks the ground, you know, in yep. the spring, uh, the hierophant plants the seed, and, you know, the t- the earthy sign, you plant the seed in the earth, and then the lovers, the airy sign, you, <laughs> you have to weed. <laughs> that's the next right. step. Or, or that's when the uh, sprout breaks the ground right. and, and, and reaches uh, the rises air. into the air. Yeah, that's another way to look at it. Yeah, I like that, too, because it's sort of like, you know, it, it uh, references the the breaking, separating, swordsy part of the lovers. Theory in the emperor application in the hierophant analysis in the lovers. There's so many different ways you can look at it, uh, different groups of three that work. Um, But they all have this sort of initiatory quality to them. If If you look at the nine numeric minors, that tells the same story in a different way. Um, mm-hmm. You know, dominion, virtue, completion, worry, success, failure, interference, cruelty, ruin. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's almost like the cycle of, of growth and decay. Right, right. And it's less scary to think about those scary eight, nine, ten of swords when you realize that that's just the natural part of the cycle. And that, you know, you might be starting with the two, three, and four of wands where you're kind of establishing kingdom, you know, separating the individual from the whole, a celebration of that dominion. And then in the five, six, seven of discs, you're you're making things fruitful by, you know, in the five of discs, anticipating what could go wrong, the six of discs sort of... Uh, maintaining its health and growth, and then by the seven of discs, evaluating what happened in that process. Yeah, and persevering even through the Any difficulties. Obstacles. Exactly. That, so that's very interesting, that seven of discs as evaluation turns into the very intellectual eight of swords, where you're kind of doing the same thing in a much more analytical, theoretical, mental Yeah, way. you're untangling the problems that have arisen. Right. So, you know, in 8, 9, and 10 of Swords, you take everything you learned in that 2, 3, 4 of Wands, 5, 6, 7 of Discs, and you have to, you know, apply your mind to it, derive a theory, derive a sort of formula for going forward that is no longer attached to, you know, kind of the empirical things that happened. It's sort of, you need to make a choice going forward of how you're now going to conduct yourself based on what you've learned, which is a sort of a Gemini quality, that quality of taking in data and learning from it. And, and realizing that the that all cycles have their ends. I mean, it ends in ruin, but everything ends in ruin. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I think like, and the way of thinking about that is sort of like, 
It's the twins, right? In which you have two options and one of them must be killed off in order for you to move forward. You can't always stay in that sort of eight of swords moment where both choices are alive and viable because you'll never move. Yep. And that's kind of an Eden story as well. You can sort of like, okay, in the emperor, you know, God establishes this place for men to live in paradise. In in the Hierophant card, there is that moment of naming everything and <laughs> establishing a sort of formal relationship and structure to the environment. And then in the lovers, there is the tree of life and knowledge and the choice and the fall. So yeah, cast out of Eden there too. Yeah, it's also out. interesting that um, you know this card. When we get to the Kabbalah stuff, there's a lot of Malkut stuff with this card. It's like the yeah. Malkut of Malkuts, and Absolutely. Um, Malkut makes me think of you know it was associated with the seventh day when the seventh day when God was uh, made visible by His works of mm. creation, and He rested. So there is that quality yep. of um, of rest and, of rest and, silence, and stillness gestation yeah repose it's really fascinating how all of these stories kind of layer on top of each other and then are packed away and hidden in the card <laughs> so we just went through those nine minors plus mm -hmm. the three majors but this card probably connects we are talking about this with their our uh, diagram with pins and string joke um <laughs> This card connects to more cards than any other card. So we had those three majors and the nine minors. It's and the also courts connected that we talked about. to the universe because it's yes. the it's the last minor card. It's the it's the last court card, just as the universe is the last major card. And it's also Earth of Earth and the universe is elemental earth. Then we've got, you know, she's connected to the Prince of Discs as her brother slash consort and the knight of discs because of that whole fairy tale awakening the eld of right. the allfather she's re she's also connected to those all those pure court cards we talked about fire of fire water of water air of air and earth and earth she's also connected with the knight of wands in addition to being because of fire and fire because he's the first letter of the divine name and she's the last so he's really the all father that she awakens the eld of in a way if you want to <laughs> that's uh, right that's state right. it that way you know he's first to her last then there's of course the ace of discs which the she's the flower from the root of earth she's the the fruit the that's throne. come from that root there's the ace of wands the first minor the renewal to her last minor status there's the queen of discs, what she grows up and becomes, you know, Persephone all grown up. There's the ten of discs, you know, all princesses are associated with the tens. So we've got the ten of discs for her, and it's the, the weight of the accumulation that she carries, being mm -hmm. that last card of the deck. Then there's all the cards of the middle pillar, because she's the bottom, Malkut of Malkut. She's, <laughs> but, but yet she's connected to Keter. And the path up the, the middle pillar, we have the art card and the, and the priestess card. Also, because of that connection to Keter, and because of that first and last thing, she's connected to the Fool, the first card mm -hmm. of the entire deck. And I like to think of it as the Fool is the child she gives birth to that she's pregnant with. And it starts again. That makes a lot of sense for the fool to be her child. Um, and I think like if you look at the universe and that connection between the fool and the universe, I mean, when you think of the universe, there's two ways to look at it. One as this sort of end point of everything is sort of collected and encased in this 
little enclosed kingdom in which the spirit dances. But that is also the seed and the fruit, right? So, you know, that is all the genetic information that we've gained on this 78 card journey is enclosed in there and ready to be born again. So, you know, that that cosmic egg is both the summation, the summum bonum of the great work, and also its next beginning. Yeah, the cosmic egg inside the Ouroboros. Right, with the Ouroboros indicating that the cycle never ends. Yeah, it's it's pretty remarkable. I mean, we were joking that really you should Instead of <laughs> laying out all of the cards that we have on the board as it is, which is an absolute ton. Just take the just princess like, out of the deck and yeah. put the rest of them up. <laughs> <laughs> right. So let's see. Maybe we can talk a little bit about the Kabbalistic stuff some more since we've started in on that. She's so remarkable in the sense that Malkut is separate from the others. You know, the 10 is her, her Sephira the place that she calls her home. And it's also coterminous with the fourth world, Asiya, which is all contained in Malkut. Whereas the Atzilut is the three supernal, Keter, Chokmah, and Bina at the top of the tree, whereas Bria is the next three Sephirot, the Chesed, Givora, and Tiferet. And whereas the third world, Yetzirah, is composed of those last three, Netzach, Hod, and Yesod, you have just one Sephira and one world in Asiya. The fourth world and the and the tenth Sephira overlap. And that makes it different and special in the way that the fourth of anything is different and special in any system of four. Yeah, it's the uh, cosmic dingleberry. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for you to say that. <laughs> I had to. Somebody had to. Now, the interesting thing about Malkut is that it is... It's said to be the dwelling place of the Shekinah, the feminine aspects of God. And that she has fallen is a reflection both of the Eden myth and the myth of the Klippot. You know, the idea that the light spilling through the tree breaks the vessels, which are incapable of containing them. And the Shekinah, as I understand her, is the feminine aspect of God who is dwelling among us, among men, separated from the origin of the creation, and that the great work is to unite her with the rest of creation. So the Shekinah is sometimes referred to in two forms. as, And this is something we talked about a little bit in the Ten of Cups. I went on a deep dive looking for the reference last night and finally found it, uh, where she is considered both Queen Malka and Bride Kala. Mm -hmm. So those two aspects, you know, seem really reminiscent of the story that we tell about the princess becoming the queen. Yeah, the Sefer Yetzira even says Malkut sits on the throne of Binah. Malka. Kind of like Malkut as being the the mother of all things in a way. Mm -hmm. Then there's that idea of Malkut as, um, I don't know if I'll pronounce this right, but the goof. Have you heard that term as I've the body? So it's, it's like the idea of the body as a, a temporary lodging place for spirit or the God within. Mm. And even the term Malka or queen is cognate with Malkut, you know, all those... Uh, yeah. Words of royalty are sort of bound up together. And as for Asiya, 
you know, this is something where p- if people want to know more, they should listen to the <laughs> super extra cabalistic episode of the Ace of Swords to for the distinction etymologically between those four words. But Asiya, you know, all of uh, Atsilut, Bria, Yetzir, and Atsiya, they're all sort of words for something that's created or made. But Asiya is kind of the most concrete one, as I understand it. You know, that which is made, uh, the world of action, that which is complete. So, and the other thing to remember is that although this world is kind of separate and different, everything is mixed within it. So all of those elements are blended. And sometimes we talk about the Princess of Discs as being the lowest of the low, as well as the highest of the high, because yeah, all those that, elements that old within Maxim Keter is in Malkut in a different fashion. That's I've even seen um, Malkut referred to as the dark twin of Keter. That's interesting, yeah. And that's why we have, you know, when you see it represented in Hermetic Kabbalah, you always see the different quadrants quartered within the sphere, the different colors rather than just a single color. And, of course, why all of the princess scale colors are flecked and rayed and, you know, they've got other stuff in them. Mixed, yeah. Mixed in some way. Yeah, they're they're fertilized is another way to put it. There's also the terminology for Malkut, all those titles of the various gates that I find really interesting in relation to this oh, yeah. card, especially. Do you have those listed? Can you read those off? Um, I have some of them. I probably there's a, quite a few of them. I don't have all of them, but there's the Gate of Justice, the Gate of Death, the Gate of Eden, the Gate of Tears, the Gate of the Daughter of the Mighty Ones, and. That's really interesting. The gate of the daughter of the mighty ones, because that's the title of the empress, the daughter of the mighty yeah. ones. Yeah, yeah. So it it's is. the gate of the empress. It's that. It's that uh, path between Bina and Hokma. There, that birth and death. That gate that souls pass through. You know, and then we've also got the gate of death. The gate of tears is another one, and and that's you know an association with her connection to Bina. Right. Um, the Gate of Eden, you know, that whole story of the fall, the Gate of Justice, this idea that we exist in this world and through our actions we create karma. Yeah. Because, you know, this princess is like the ultimate human on a journey and passing through these stages, these beginnings and these endings, the symbolism of the gate for Malkut seems really resonant. And that's why also, if you look at the Ace of Pentacles in Rider Waite Smith, that is her throne, you see that sort of portal to mm. the outside with the mountain. Yeah, I think we know. talked about it maybe yeah. there or another yeah. episode. I'm sure we did. I'm sure we did. And, you know, in tens generally and aces and princesses, you often see that sort of distant kingdom or distant mountain, which represents the kingdom and which implies that you know, the foreground is the gate. A couple of things. So the for Malkut, we've talked about it before, but the, the virtue is discrimination. And that, again, brings that quality of, you know, maybe the lovers and choice, mm-hmm. you know, deciding. Um, the vice is interesting because it's inertia, which can right. happen with Earth of Earth, and avarice, which is also the same vice that is associated with Bina. So, again, there's that connection between the mother and daughter thing. Yeah, that's interesting because sort of cardomantically in the history 
and we'll talk about this later, it's sort of the virtues are all having to do with industry and the vices have to do with prodigality. So there's this... Well, it makes sense for Taurus, mm-hmm. too, with, with mm-hmm. its motto of I have, you right. know... Right. And it makes you think kind of like, you know, of a tree when it's when the fruit is ripe. There's the industry of gathering in and, you know, using the harvest as it's meant to do, but also the the prodigality of the tree, you know, dropping the fruit everywhere. It's rotting. It's there's waste. There's, you know, it's it's a mess, right? It's like it's not a clean process, but both the rightness and the ripeness of the season are in there, but also the wasted and the despoiling and death and decay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, there's also themes with this card of burial in the sense that... Earth of Earth. Right, exactly. You want to bury the seed. That's its purpose. If it's just lying out because it's fallen, that is the reversal or the wastage of that potential. The symbols of Malkut are interesting Mm -hmm. to think about in terms of the Princess of Discs. So we have the mystic circle, Mm -hmm. the equal armed cross, the double cubed altar, and the uh, triangle of art. So the mystic circle and the equal armed cross, you add those together, you get the symbol of Malkut. And the equal armed cross is also a symbol for the letter Tau, which is the letter of the universe. The Tau is not just shown as an, it's shown as an equal armed cross. That's considered the the swastika stilled. So we've got Mm -hmm. the fool, Aleph, whose letter is said to resemble the swastika. If you take an equal armed cross and spin it, that's what you'll see. You'll see that, that spinning solar cross, that swastika shape, when the stillness descends at the very end of all things in the in the letter Tav, you see it, it pause and it's an equal armed cross. That's right, because it's the princess of discs or page of pentacles is at rest. Yeah, and mm-hmm. we're going to see a lot of terms of rest in this, in this card. Mm-hmm. And also, the interesting thing about that Tav is associated with the equal armed cross with Malkut is that it's if you're looking at the cube of space, it's the central point that's central to the other, the three mother letters, Aleph, Mem, and Shin. So when you think of a central point, too, you think of stillness, of rest. Right. And right. so there's, there's that going on. Then we've got the double cube altar. And right. so it's a cube stacked on top of a cube. Um, mm-hmm. about the height of the waist of the magician, and it's black on the outside and white on the inside. Do we see that represented anywhere? Because, you know, in the Thoth princesses, there's always this double altar, but it's sort of pinched in in the middle. Um, yeah, we we don't see it shaped mm-hmm. as the double cube anywhere, but mm-hmm. that's a symbol of Malku. And they, and interestingly, the princess has all have altars, and I think that's part of the idea is that Malku itself is considered an altar for the spirit to descend upon. Yes, that's interesting. Um, the idea that there is a locus where matter and spirit can meet. Yeah, and the fact that it's black on the outside, the a color of Malkut, but white on the inside, again, there's those opposites, you know, Keter and mm-hmm. Malkut. Keter's mm-hmm. color is white, Malkut's color is black. 
as well as Bina's color is is black. One of Malkut's colors is black. She has several colors, but it's just interesting to think that within those black cubes, the author was supposed to be painted white. That connection again to spirit, you know, earth and matter, matter and spirit. That makes sense. And then the last uh, symbol, the triangle of art, that's the uh, triangle of evocation. Again, it speaks to this idea of bringing something into from spirit into matter, visible. Right. In a working, that's, that's where you evoke the spirit you're communicating with. The circle is your area. <laughs> and yes. The, and the triangle belongs to the other. <laughs> yes. Whatever it may be. So you have to have both present, but each contained. Yeah, so those symbols all seem Malkut in general, so all the princesses, but for some reason, this particular one, they really stick out. Yeah, and I think that there's also something inherently magical about pentacles or discs generally, but particularly in this kind of final moment, where there's this moment where the thing that you've been working on through this entire journey takes flight, where it takes on its own life. It's yeah, exactly. I don't know if you um, want to talk any at all about the angels. I don't have much on it, but I jotted down a note just that the the angels of Malkut can be considered Sandalphon, the angel of Earth, the planet Earth, right. Metatron, kind of like the, the sum of all the angelic forces together, and Uriel, the angel of the Earth element, elemental Earth. And really particularly prepare anything on that but i think we may have talked about it a bit in the ten of discs episode that's the sort of thing we would have done Um, yeah probably oh and then the other thing it's associated with is these idea of um i guess they're angelic beings called ashim fire beings we have you know this earth of earth that then connects to fire of fire and starts the cycle again yeah sorry i'm just pulling out my ten of discs notes oh yeah 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 yeah. oh right so speaking of altars so sandalphon we talked about this in ten of discs he's the one who gathers the prayers into garlands Mm -hmm. and uh and also differentiates the sex of the embryo so again all of these themes which are very appropriate for the princess herself Yep. He is the one who um, supports the Shekinah. Again, that sort of uh, altar references there. Yeah, And also, a- you know, as associated with the planet Earth, what, what better for mm-hmm. this card? And, you know, speaking of that sort of like the fruit falling on the ground or being buried in the Earth, the archdemon associated with Malkut was this one... Nama'a, who uh, was a consort of Lilith, and who causes epilepsy, some kind of ailment in children. So, you know, the idea that you could somehow miss the potential of the seed to fruit and flower. Yeah, or that, you know, inherent in every birth is a death. There's the seed of decay is already there. Exactly. The cause of death was birth. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Right. Otherwise known as Here We Go Again. All right. So um, I've got a couple of small things on the cardomantic references, if we're ready for that. Sure. All right. So cardomantically, pages or princesses are connected to jacks or knaves. So they're typically thought of as male. But even the sort of male personalities that go with them are interesting. So one of the male personalities that goes with the 
knave of clubs or jack of clubs is Judas Maccabeus, who was like a Hebrew warrior from the second century BCE. And he's associated, now this is interesting in terms of the card, he's associated with the restoration of the temple. Uh, the restoration mm. of the Second Temple, which is what is celebrated during the festival of Hanukkah. So there's this sort of like restoration of the sacred, the idea that there's a holy warrior, somebody who is willing to defend the connection between the divine and the mundane. Uh, and also, you know, Hanukkah as, as the festival of lights. There's this sort of like out of the darkness light quality to it which yep. also seems appropriate to the card. And then another reference that went with the knave of clubs or jack of clubs was Lancelot, Lancelot Duloc, the perfect knight, <laughs> in which, Almost you know... Almost perfect knight. Right, exactly. Goodness and strength were combined within him, except <laughs> <laughs> there's, again, this sort of magical qualities of, of Lancelot in that he was... Apparently, I didn't really know this about his childhood, his his parentage, his kingdom, he was exiled from it as an infant uh, with his parents, and he was raised by the Lady of the Lake. That's why he's called Lancelot du Lac. So he had this kind of magical upbringing that formed him into the paragon of knighthood that he was. So, you know, again, there's a sort of theme of industry and righteousness versus prodigality, where, of course, his great fall and the fall of the kingdom was his adulterous affair with Guinevere. Because of that, it was the fall of Camelot. And it was also his downfall in the sense that when he went on the Grail quest, he was only allowed, uh, he was to not allowed, yes. right, he only got the, the slightest glimpse of it. And it was his son the obnoxiously pure Galahad <laughs> was able to truly grasp the true meaning of the grail. There's that like uh, contrast of perfect potential and the possibility of calamity, <laughs> you know, side by side. And then finally, one other cardomantic reference is that the Jack of Clubs is often called Pam. Now, that's a weird one. And it's actually short for Pamphilus or Pamphilus, uh, meaning the friend of all. And there's a game, a card game called Lou, uh, in which the Jack of Clubs trumps everything else, which is weird when you think about it from a playing card standpoint. You don't see that often, but sort of seems to make sense from a Princess of Discs page of Pentacles standpoint. Trumps everything. It's the whole point. And interestingly enough, when we talked about sort of the connection with the fool, the Jack of Clubs Pam character was said to be the, he was this like rakish erotic figure who was the predecessor of the Joker in the pack. You know, that's kind of like, and of course we connect the Joker with the fool at some level. Mm. So there's a little bit of a connection there. Reminds me of um, Crowley's poem in in the back of um, Book of Thoth, there's that section where every trump is given a little little poem. And the one mm -hmm. for the fool makes me think of this card and the connection between the Princess of Discs and the fool as being born from her womb. And mm -hmm. the, the poem has, at the end of it, it says, Be neither man nor woman, but both in one. 
Be silent, babe, in the egg of blue, that thou may grow to bear the lance and grail. Wander oh, wow. alone and sing. In the king's palace, his daughter awaits thee. Yeah, there's all kinds of overlapping imagery. Hey, did and, you find yeah. in your cartomantic research... I didn't get a chance to look this up, but I saw a reference to a female version of this page called the yes. Fantesca. Yes, that is in Paul Husson's Mystical Origins of the Tarot. And it's interesting because it's the only one that I've run across where there was a reference to a female version. And Fantesca is just the sort of feminine of, of Knave. Um, and I think there was just one deck where she was represented that way. But it's really interesting, right? The idea that yeah. this is something that you can find in the history of the cards, not just sort of applied esoterically from the 20th century on. All right, so shall we look at Rider-Waite-Smith? Sure. So here's the Page of Pentacles, which I always thought was the most boring card in the entire deck <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> until starting down the wormhole with Fortune's Wheelhouse. I really did not have a lot to say about it, but now it's starting to unfold a bit. Mm -hmm. And the number one thing I have learned, and this is literally only in the last 24 hours, is that if you look at that pentacle that the page of pentacles is holding, it is hovering. It's not held. This is a magical pentacle. <laughs> yes. And, you know, it's clear in the weight text, he even says that, uh, a youthful figure looking intently at the pentacle, which hovers over his raised hands. That's not something that we see elsewhere in the sequence of pentacles. It's always resting on something or held by somebody. But now yeah, it's like the opposite of the heaviness of the weight of Earth of Earth. Mm -hmm. You know, it's almost more like showing its divine nature in that connection to Keter. Yeah, or as if by investing it with all of this freight of meaning and intention, it is now taken on a life of its own. The the pentacle itself as a symbol, you know, it's got the, the five points of, you know, the five points of man, the five powers of the Sphinx, the fifth element of spirit. It's got all that going on for it, too. Mm -hmm. It's almost as if, like, if you imagine him holding it, it's almost as if he's holding it, and then it suddenly just floated out of his hands. It kind of looks like it's just leaving which is crazy. I, which is I kind of interesting for the fifth element of spirit, that idea of, you know, lifting off and leaving. And you know what's really curious about sort of the history of this card? In the, in the Marseille tarots, the illustration of the, you know, valet de denier or whatever you want to call him, the page of pentacles or princess of discs in, in the Marseille decks, is that there's always two pentacles, not just one holding one, and then there's one buried in the earth or sitting on the earth. You know, mm. um, since it's flat representation, we don't know if it's buried or in the earth. And the idea that you get one pentacle to hold, but one is buried in the ground. You know, no. I think else we see that plowed field in the card. Maybe it's buried mm -hmm. over there. It's being planted. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and uh, actually, in the in the king of coins or discs or pentacles or whatever in Marseille, there's also two where the king is holding it, uh, holding one, and then there's one sort of like stamped in the sky like a sun next to him. You know, but elsewhere 
in the chord cards, it's usually only one uh, element. Mm. So again, you know, special and different, like everything with this card. <laughs> anyway, so another really weird thing that I hadn't really thought about in the previous chord cards of discs or pentacles that we talked about is that the background in these four, you know, page knight, queen, king of pentacles in Rider Waite Smith is yellow. It's different from all of the others. So all of the other court cards, the other 12, have blue or gray backgrounds. You know, I think it's blue for all of them except for the page and king of cups, which are gray. But yeah, yellow's yellow's an interesting choice. I mean, this very. deck doesn't work with the color scales in the same way, but yellow is the perfect color in a sense because it connects with the fool, you know, yellow mm -hmm. being the absolute color of the fool, and also it connects it with the sun, you know, Tiferet. Mm -hmm. Yellow being one of the colors of Tiferet, the bridegroom. So it connects the card both with Keter, the fool, and with the prince, you know, the bridegroom as the sun. Yeah, and as well, as far as the bridegroom as the sun goes, there's also that sort of alchemical gold feeling to it. Mm. Right? Yep. You know, this is the point of what we've come to. And when you think about it, it's not like you ever see a yellow sky. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, right. In nature. So there's something, again, special, different and weird about it. And you see that yellow sky in page, knight, queen and king of pentacles. They are uniform that way. Again, that's different. Um, yeah, and again, it's conne yeah. that connection between fire and earth, you know, the sun warming yeah. the earth. The expression on this guy, he is, according to Waite, insensible of that which is about him. So that's interesting way to describe it, because on the one hand, he's focused entirely on this magical object which he's holding. But also that kind of references the sort of sleeping, resting, you know, mm. Yeah, the sleeping qualities. beauty quality. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of like the reason that they're oblivious is because they're concentrating on this internal magical world in some way. Or alternatively, you could look at it as sleeping as a metaphor for being unawakened, you know, and just being yeah. just about matter. Could be. Yeah. And then we have, well, we have the mountain in the back, again, hill and mountain iconography and the plowed yep. fields. We also saw plowed fields in the Knight of Pentacles, but here they're they're so distant that they could well be starting to germinate. You can't really tell. And the fact that the mountain's there, that's a mountain that you can glimpse in the other court cards as well. It's kind of like the mountain in the fool card too. Yeah. And if you look at the Ace of Pentacles, it's the same mountain in the same place, you know, mm. in the lower right corner there. There's that as well. The fruit of the root. color -wise. We've got the little mushroom thingies like all the other pentacle yes. courts. Oh, yes, underfoot then. Yeah, that yep. you see on the others. Yep. On the and left hand, it mm -hmm. looks like a red mushroom to me. And then you have the six trees, six or seven trees in back there, which are I interesting. I count six, because, <laughs> but it could be seven. Say, could be. There's sort of like some that are thicker that might be hiding others. But the... Um, there aren't trees in the King and Queen of Pentacles, but the, there are two in the uh, Knight of Pentacles. So it's sort of like if you go through that sequence from King to Queen to Knight to Page, you go from sort of small plants to large plants. <laughs> but the plants, you know, so like the, the King has these like 
grapevines that are right in the foreground, right in the face. But then by the page, you have these distant trees, which appear to be smaller, but which in reality are much larger. And if there are indeed six, which it kind of looks like there are, then it's another connection to both the sun and to mm-hmm. Tiferet, the prince. You yeah. know, the other thing about this card that jumped out at me was that red feather. Yeah. The red feather of the fool and the red feather of death. So again, it's more beginnings and endings, yeah, birth and exactly. death. exactly. And the sun also has the red feather. Oh, yeah, and the sun. So, yeah, Yeah. there's definite connection there. Yeah, and as we talked about before, the headgear of a page is always interesting in Rider-Waite-Smith. So you've got, well, actually, Page of Wands has a little bowler hat with like a flame, (laughs) flame like plume on it, tiny little flame flickering on top. And then the Page of Cups has a similar sort of uh, turban type thing to the Page of Pentacles, only there's a plumage that looks like a wave cascading off of it which is appropriate and the page of swords got nothing no hat whatsoever which is different and then of course we have this one which is this turban in the color of life with the red feather of the fool death the sun and maybe the page of swords has nothing because you know her associated with the mind she's not her her mind is open (laughs) yeah there's no barriers between her and everything else i don't know yeah. it's it's really interesting i yep. i I'm, i always find that curious uh he's of course dressed in this unadorned tunic which is uh similar to the page of swords the other two pages have decorations all over them but these two are different it's green color of taurus slash venus i guess you could say yeah color of growth yeah The other thing I notice about him is that he's got these sort of dirt, sand-colored hose and boots on. He looks like he's dressed for work, which none of the other pages (laughs) are. They've all got their fancy clothes on. This guy could actually, you know, walk miles in the fields and he wouldn't ruin his clothes. Plant some pentacles. (laughs) If that's what he wishes to do. One other really weird thing I always thought about this card, and I don't know what how you interpreted it, but if you look at his like right bicep, he's either built like the rock or else those <laughs> are folds of cloth. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if those are puffy sleeves or he's been working out. Yeah, because like all the other ones, all the other pages are clearly puffy sleeves. But whenever I look at this one, I can't help but think this guy is just seriously ripped (laughs) (laughs) well that makes sense for earth and taurus could be could be just could be very built like a bull you know built like a brick shit house (laughs) that they say (laughs) that's extremely appropriate (laughs) according to weight he considered this guy in upright meaning to be application study scholarship reflection rule or management and then Reversed, he just borrows straight from Matea, prodigality, dissipation, luxury. I mean, I I actually see this card as a student very often. When I'm reading for clients, uh, this is one of the cards I'll take to be someone who is undertaking a course of learning at which they're just... That fits even in another sense, just Mm -hmm. that we're all students of life. You know, to me, this card is the card of incarnation, you know? I can totally see that. There's that... um, interiority brooding quality that sort of like really studying the matter at hand rather than acting like say a a knight of swords or something like that yeah there's definitely a um studious quality to it all right shall we uh shall we look at thoth yeah sure 
Oh, gosh. Love this card to bits. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. It's just stunning. I, it is by far my favorite court card. And a lot of other people's, too. <laughs> yep. Lon Milo Duquette, did you yeah, say you have Lon a crush Milo on Duquette her? Has a, has a severe <laughs> crush on this card. There's so much going on in here. I don't even know where to begin. Didn't Lady Frida say when she was making it, the princess is now on the stocks. I guess that means that she's working on her. I wish she would not insist on being pregnant. She just will, so now I have to let her get on with it. She chatters to me about being mixed up with the Virgin Mary. I guess Lady Frida did not necessarily think of her as being a, you know, a pregnant maiden, but that's how she insisted on coming out, which makes sense. Indeed. I think the first thing that struck me just looking at it this time was the ram horns. You know, the spiral that's, force. Yeah, and also, you know, if you look, where else do we see ram horns? You could argue that we do in the Princess of Wands. You know, she's got that big giant Ares sigil on her head. Um, yeah, so and that, in the um, the Emperor. Yeah, so there's that connection with both of them that connects her, you know, the Princess of Wands does not contain the decans of Ares, so it always seemed kind of odd to me that the Princess of Wands had that Ares sigil on her head, but this princess is. So I always think of the Rite of Spring when I see yeah. these ram horns and, you know, the, the start of the season and the sacrificial maiden and, mm -hmm. you know, that whole series of mythologies that we talked and about this, in The Princess This card Wands. just looks like that, too. The trees are bare. It's yeah. like that point in at the end of winter and the beginning of spring. You know, they haven't started budding yet, but they're about to. She's still wearing furs, mm -hmm. but growth is coming. Yeah, that's so interesting. So so the sacred grove that she's in, you're right, the, the trees are bare. And it's like, at that moment, you can smell spring coming, you know, you can smell it in the air, but you don't see it around you. You know, and that that fur that she's wearing makes me think of the idea that to get through the winter, you know, there were animal sacrifices, like the way we slaughter animals for nourishment and, you know, and for their fur in the as the frost descends in say November December in the northern hemisphere so she's she's taken that gift of the animal's life to help her nourish new life in the spring yeah and i love the way lady frida did the fur you, yeah. it, you almost look like you could reach out and touch it you want to reach out and touch it it's like it's got this like sense that it's tactile and textured and it's almost reminds me of how Malkut is the sphere of sensation. You know, it's where yes. we experience the five senses. Yeah. And it's the home of the Nefesh, the animal soul as well. Yep. Yeah. And then there's uh, this association with this card. She's wearing fur because of her association with the nymph Callisto. Callisto was the most beautiful nymph of Artemis. So she had dedicated her life to the goddess Artemis, and as such, she had to take a vow to remain a virgin. It's kind of tragic. Yeah. The myth goes, of course, uh, Randy Zeus takes a liking to beautiful <laughs> nymph, and um, he disguises himself as Artemis to get close to her because she's, you know, sworn off men. 
And when he gets close to her, by his actions, he reveals himself to be interested in her that way. He basically rapes her, and she gets pregnant with uh, a son, Arcus, who was the the founder of Arcadia. But the myth goes that, well, Artemis was was mad at Callisto Mm -hmm. for, and was going to, you know, tear her apart for, even though it wasn't her fault kind of tragic yeah, I blame the victim, and man. um <laughs> so she gives she gives birth to the son arcus and hera of course is very jealous and and in any the story ends kind of sadly because she gets transformed into the great bear you know ursa major yes. the the big the big dipper and her son the, is the little bear right the, no it's the great bear and the little bear, Ursa Major and Ursa Minor, yeah, she yeah, yeah, becomes Ursa Major. But the story goes that her son, Arcus, is hunting. She she gets turned into a bear by Hera. And her son is hunting one day and sees her and is about to put an arrow through her, her own son, not realizing that that is his mother. Zeus intervenes, feels bad that she got turned into a bear by Hera because of him. And sends her up into the heavens as the great bear and sends her son up into the heavens right. as the little bear. Right. And now Hera is mad again because it's like, well, what the hell? Now you reward them by putting them up in my (laughs) heavens with me? So she made it so that the great bear and the little bear revolve around that North Star Polaris, which is one of the stars in the Little Dipper, the little bear. Right. So Arcus becomes the little bear and she's the great bear and she's forced to revolve around that point, never getting to cool her toes in the ocean because those two constellations um, never get to set. Um, And interestingly enough, too, the, the culmination at midnight of that constellation is at the uh, spring equinox, I believe. So there's another connection there. Fascinating. When you interact with the gods, <laughs> both your reward and your punishment kind of suck. <laughs> kind of are the same thing. <laughs> so that's one connection with the sort of um, animal fur that she's wearing. But I also believe that whenever you see an animal fur on a on a human form, in tarot generally shamanistic shamanistic elements exactly the idea that you are connecting with the spirit in everything in life in animals and plants and that recognition of that connection between all life allows you to travel between realms mm-hmm. so i think that there's something of that going on as well let's talk about her excellent staff shall we <laughs> yeah yeah it's really important i think that that diamond head of keter is facing down and not up yeah it's back into the earth. It's like Keter in Malkut, you know, the diamond in the earth. Right. Because normally when we see Keter references throughout this deck, they're usually going to be at the top of the card pointing upward. Yeah, it's here like here the Keter, the highest and purest, the light, you know, is this glowing quartz crystal, but it's it's kind of plunging down into the, the densest element of earth. Yeah, I'm going to just read the Crowley passage. It's short. Uh, Her scepter descends into the earth. There its head becomes a diamond, the precious stone of Keter, thus symbolizing the birth of the highest and purest light in the deepest and darkest of the elements. The other thing really interesting about the diamond symbol of Keter, I believe one of the associations with Malkut as the stone is coal. And what does coal become under pressure but a diamond? Right. 
Right. That makes perfect sense. And this idea that in Malkut, you have condensation, compression, pressure, force, gravity, all of these things that allow the diamond to form. Really interesting is that altar there. It's a little bit like the other altars we see in Princess Cards in Thoth. Um, you see it's sh- got little wheat shafts on it. It does. And it's, Crowley says that that's because she is a priestess of Demeter. Persephone figure, yeah. 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 So I did a little bit of diving down the wormhole on the Eleusinian mysteries last night because of that. And, you know, the Eleusinian mysteries are mysteries of Demeter and Persephone. It's that story retold. And although it was you know, very much a secret what went on there. We do know that it was meant to be symbolic of the rebirth of all life, that it's sort of a three-part ceremony where there's a descent into the underworld and a search for the daughter and then an ascent back into light and growth again. Now, the culmination, you'll love this, the culmination of those rites I read was an ear of grain cut in silence. Mm. So that makes perfect sense, right? Doesn't it? Yeah, the grain part, but also the silence part in this power of the Sphinx. And what they consumed to have their visions and trances was this something called Cucaeon, which we don't even know what that mix was exactly. It's those mushrooms in the Rider Waite card. (laughs) Could be. But, you know, Danny Nemu is one of our Patreon listeners. He's wrote that wonderful book, Near Apocalypse, where he delves into entheogens and psychotropic drugs. And we were talking about whether it's um, mushrooms or whether it's weed or whether it's grain, because it may have ah, been... Ah, ergo, yes, the erga, uh, the rye exactly, fungus, LSD. Exactly. Um, or possibly barley. But the uh, it's definitely something psychoactive. And the word kukion simply means something which is stirred or mixed. And that in itself seemed evocative to me, because of course she is the mixture of all things. Yeah, Definitely, Malkut being the combination of the three preceding elements. Yeah, so it's sort of like, you know, in order to transcend the earthly realms, in order to gain eternal life. And I think, you know, the Eleusinian mysteries, some people posit that it had to do about retaining consciousness after death and moving forward with an awareness of what's going on. But anyway, being at the center of that transition of the cycles and being aware of it requires you to accept this highly polluted, you know, fermented blend of everything that came before. That's part of her nature, I think. Oh, what about her seed pod? The disc she's gazing at. There's a couple of things on that. So it's got 36 petals, which you could think of as the complete 36 decans kind Mm -hmm. of a hint that that she's the totality of all the, the all the miners. Then there's the yin yang uh, symbol in the center of it, which is really interesting because um, you know Crowley says about this card. He says it's the materialization of element and reabsorption of energy, thus at the same time permanent and non-existent. An audit <laughs> of the equation zero equals two, and that yin yang symbol kind of exemplifies this idea of zero equals two. It's the yin and the yang. It's the emptiness and the fullness. It's the stillness and the motion. It's the complexity of Malkut and the simplicity of Keter all, you know, rolled into one totality, which annihilates itself. Perfect balance. 
and the perfect zero. Which again brings in the fool. So it's you know the zero and the two, the 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 positive and the negative, creating both the zero. You know, combine a mm-hmm. a positive with the negative. But if you consider them as absolute values, there are two of them. Yeah, and you know what's interesting when I look at that seed pod or disc or whatever it is, I think of seeds in general how they're they're protected and enclosed and. They can just kind of sit for essentially forever or a really long time doing absolutely nothing, you know, and it's only when you fecundate them by planting them in the earth. Like if you look at that grove of apparently lifeless trees, the the roots are greenish yellow. They're like, you know, the roots are pulsing with life. So when you return and bury the seed into the earth, that's when it comes alive again. It's both those themes of rest and silence, but the themes of hidden potential life as well. And it also looks like a rose. So it's beautiful. <laughs> the shape of it, so it brings in that rose of the palace of earth thing, and yeah. also the rose as a symbol of the goddess Isis, the empress and the goddess Isis. I think Curly even mentions Isis in uh, r- relation to this card. And I was thinking about that, like, so Isis was one of four siblings, uh, Osiris, Isis, Set, and Nephthys, all born to Nuit and her consort Geb, who was the the lord of the earth. So that seems kind of appropriate. As well as if you think of the the petals of the rose, if those if those sections are petals being thirty six, but also being thirty six as being three times twelve. So you've got the twelve the twelve signs, the three elements, or you could even look at it as corresponding with the the empress. And and the hanged man, the stillness and silence and the, the birth of motherhood and, and growth of the empress. So there's a lot going on there. Yeah, that makes sense. That you sense. could extrapolate from that. And then also the way she's just like in the Rider Waite version where Waite describes the page as looking intently at this pentacle. She seems to be gazing down, possibly looking within or possibly looking at that pentacle pretty intently. And mm-hmm. I wrote down this short Blake poem that we're probably all familiar with, but it really seems to kind of speak to a little bit the way she's gazing at this thing. It says, uh, to see a world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wild flower, hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. Oh, that's kind of perfect. Seems like that's this perfect. card with the, um, you know, the idea of the yin yang there that she's holding in her hands. Yeah, and also the idea of, the, of eternity in an hour. There's something about the Ace of Pentacles and or Ace of Discs, and by extension this card that has to do to me with the the ideas of finite time and infinite time, sort of being yeah. connected and related to each other. What is um, the connection of the rose with Isis? Because I know that Crowley says, you know, from this, the yin-yang symbol is born the rose of Isis, the great fertile mother. But I wasn't familiar with the rose as a, as a token. Well, the rose is also a symbol of the empress. There's some connection there. I'd have, mm-hmm. to, I'd have to think about that. I didn't actually dig down that wormhole. Yeah, I mean, I assume it's just that sort of like, you know, Isis has a lot of different significations, you know, the magical, but also the wife, but also the mother. And I assume it's, you know, in her fertile aspect, roses are always right. connected with fertility. Yeah, unfolding. And then we have, um, let's see, the the I Ching hexagram, which is gen, which means mountain. And it's the 
gun trigram over the gun trigram. So mountain over mountain. And I have as a signification for that keeping still. Yeah, that's what I have like too. And also to rest after a long journey, which seems How really appropriate. appropriate for her, doesn't it? <laughs> She's been through the entire deck. I know some of these court cards, you know, some of them, so some of the court card eaching matches are a little bit of a stretch, but this one seems like it was made for this card. <laughs> yeah, the idea of mountain too, and the interesting, the mountain over mountain, the two mountains, I mean, in, in my card, and I think in the Rider Waite card, the Queen of Discs has the two mountains, and that's, mm-hmm. you know, what she what she grows up to be. So it's kind of interesting. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing about the, the mountain, I think Crowley referred to the mountain as a symbol of deity and Godhead itself, and also mentions somewhere a meditation where you rest each part of the body. And this uh-huh. card having to do with the stillness and the meditation, but also with the body, it just felt perfectly appropriate. That's perfectly appropriate. I agree. In fact, that's something that my mother taught me. I don't know where she got it. It certainly wasn't from Curly, but when I was having trouble sleeping when I was a kid, she would tell me to tense and relax each part of my body. Oh, I do that. Do Do you do that too? Yeah, it must have been a thing going around in the 70s. Yeah, probably. (laughs) And some of the commentary on the I Ching hexagram, and I think it's number, I forgot to mention the number of the hexagram. It's hexagram 52. I think... the 52 commentary pickup. <laughs> <laughs> the commentary I read suggested that this was a silence that prepares the mind you know so the meditative qualities that allow you to later progress when the time is ripe to move forward so again it's that the four powers of the sphinx ending in to keep silent and then to go there's that sort of moment where everything is collected and pausing, but it's not ending. It's just getting ready to start again. We see her pregnant, and there's this idea of the grave as a womb. So when you Mm -hmm. die, you're reborn. And the womb as a grave, when you are incarnated, you're losing that spiritual infinite bliss everything that you had to come (laughs) into this world of matter it's a death in the sense that you have not yet escaped the wheel of samsara yeah exactly samsara the only other thing i notice in here to mention is i love how you see the roots of the trees the the ground is like transparent Mm -hmm. and crystalline so you can see the roots and it's again that sense of you know everything growing from the root. Yeah, and it's interesting when you think about, sometimes you're encouraged to think of the tree of life as being upside down with its roots in the air, you know? So you can do that by thinking of the diamond head of the scepter as Keter. And right, the upside the down. These trees, yeah, being a tree, mirror image. The starting in Keter. Right. And the fruit being down in Malkut. I always used to think that she was staring down into an abyss, and in a way she is, but it's also the top of the next tree. Right. It's like <laughs> the inner abyss that you encounter in, in meditation. I love that about, you know, her power of to keep silence and that idea of meditation and that whole, I probably mentioned it in another episode, but that idea that silence isn't the answer to the riddle of the Sphinx. It's that which is created by the answer. Oh, and the other thing that's usually associated with court cards, which... Crowley doesn't talk about, but what should be in here is the geomantic figure. I'm pretty sure that the geomantic figure associated with the Princess of Discs should be Caput Draconis. Um, That's what I have too. 
Yeah, because the Princess of Wands is Cauda Draconis, the dragon's tail, and therefore this is Caput Draconis, the uh, dragon's head, so North Node. I found that really interesting, the, sure the Princess is. of Wands being the uh, dragon's tail and associated with exiting and leaving, which, and then the Princess of Disc being associated with the dragon's head, associated with entering. It's, it's like you yeah. think that it would be the other the way around. The opposite way, yeah. So again, we have that beginning and ending, fire and earth kind of conflation. Right. The, you would think that it would be the other way around but the beginning is in the ending and the ending is in the beginning and yeah it kind of speaks to that fifth element thing you know after you achieve the stillness and the silence the next thing is to take action to go so in a way this is the action of action card yes and also when you think about the way we assign meaning to the north node and south node I mean, North Node, Caput Draconis, Rahu, is, you know, that hunger hungry, for yeah, life, you know, one. yeah, the, the devouring aspects. And, you know, and here she is about to give birth, about to start this whole cycle over again. Whereas the Princess of Wands, the South Node, Cauda Draconis, Ketu, would, whatever you want to call it, would be that which has received everything and is ready to move on. So, you know, so the re- Princess of Wands is, in a sense, the recipient of everything that was gathered for her in the previous tree of life cycle of elements, whatever it is. It's also interesting that, you know, when Caput Draconis shows up in Geomancy, it's said to be a neutral card in that it's it's good with good and, and evil with evil. So it, it brings mm-hmm. itself to itself in a way. And it's said to be especially fortunate for beginnings and future opportunities. Yeah, I got that too. Definitely profit as well. And one way of looking at it, I was told, one way of looking at it, I read in John Michael Greer's book, if you look at the sort of two dot, one dot, one dot, one dot, it's a doorway with footprints leading up to it. Mm, Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, you can imagine again, that sort of gateway. The lines are each associated with an element. So that top line would correspond Mm -hmm. to fire and fire being two dots makes it passive. Well, the other three elements are uh, active. And I read something somewhere that the idea that fire was the passive line means that this figure is striving towards spirit. Yeah, and that would make fire an active line in Cauda Draconis and the Princess of Wands, which would make sense. So just to review sort of like how those geomantic associations work, you know, so you basically have, you have 16 geomantic figures, 12 of them are assigned to the signs of the zodiac in the sort of way that 12 of the court cards are associated with single-ish signs of the zodiac. But then for the final four, mm-hmm. the the reason that there's four extra is because there's the north node, the south nodes, and then the secondary geomantic figures associated with the sun and moon. So each planet gets two, but the sun and moon each get two as well in geomantic figures. So the secondary sign of the sun is Fortuna Minor, that goes with the Princess of Swords, and the secondary sign of the moon is Via, and that goes with the Princess of Cups. And then you have the two nodes that are assigned to Princess of Wands and Princess of Discs, thereby, again, em- emphasizing the connection between those two. Wands and Discs, yeah, they're Wands connected. Wands and Discs, always, always. In the beginning and the end. Fire and Earth. You got anything one more else? thing about that I really like about the Thoth card in Crowley's description, especially when we're thinking about that disc that she holds, it also looks like a wheel. 
Yes, it and does. He, he mentions in there, you know, something about the it's the lottery wheel that where every event is equally probable and equally a prize. Every event is a is a play of New Eid, I think he said. Yeah, and he was very reluctant to give the Princess of Discs a single character. He kind of considered her the embodiment of fickle, variable womanhood <laughs> because of that, which, yeah, was, that which is a little frustrating is, to me. You know, that whole idea that every number is infinite, there is no difference. Everything that manifests, the 10,000 things are all an aspect of the one thing. Which, of course, is really great esoterically, but kind of hard to interpret in real life. <laughs> you know, if yeah, you get yeah. that card, well, if you get a thought card of this. Here you go. It's like the symbol. <laughs> you know, I wrote that essay about the, the quartered cross symbol it, where actually it sums it up as it means everything. Yeah. With this card, you know, that <laughs> this card is the equivalent of that symbol. Yeah. And yet in like in actual practice, I think it's often good for people to be reminded that they have infinite potential inside them. You know, sometimes, you know, they get lost in their story and don't realize that all things are still possible. So this card can be a really good reminder of that. All right. Shall we have a look at Tabula Mundi? Oh, sure. Well, we've pretty much already said everything that can can be said, but I'll see if there's anything else that we could possibly say about this card. It's Um, very beautiful. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I love this one. So we can start with the court crest. We have that uh, winged ram's head. That's that's from the book T description, which I guess we might as well read. I really want a ram horn headdress. <laughs> oh, you can buy those on eBay, Etsy. Can you? They, I totally want one. Them. You can easily have one of those. Might be heavy. Might be heavy. All right. Um, Traditional description, a strong and beautiful Amazon figure with rich brown hair standing on grass or flowers, a grove of trees near her. Her form suggests Hebe, Ceres, and Proserpine. She bears a winged ram's head as a crest and wears a mantle of sheepskin. In one hand, she carries a scepter with a circular disc, in the other, a disc similar to that of the Ace of Discs. So that's, you know, a little bit different than what we have going Mm -hmm. on in the cards, but pretty close you know um i would have thought it was a bear skin but i suppose the sheep skin with the ram's head would uh, be more appropriate <laughs> one thing i like about your princess again because this one is separate different and special is that she's not carrying the emblem of her suit like your other princesses are yeah it's kind yeah. of implied in that big disc behind her yeah and she kind of is the emblem of the suit so yeah. that big disc behind her is marked with the word Babylon, which again, that idea, you know, like Crowley said, of the, the the ultimate manifestation of womanhood in all its myriad forms, as well mm-hmm. as the idea of the connection to Bina and the mother, you know. What else can we say? So the ram head. So not only do you think of ram, the spring, you know, the idea of Aries and the renewal and spring, and you think of the diamond and Keter and all that stuff, but the, the ram head also looks like the shape of a womb. If you've ever seen an anatomical drawing of a womb, it really is shaped like a ram head, which is kind of interesting, especially in terms of this pregnant princess. Yeah, I never thought about that. Uterus, fallopian tubes, ovaries, it all sort of makes that shape. Yeah. Yep. And the ram head's also shaped like, if you consider just an inverted pentacle, the two Mm -hmm. horns, the ears, and the chin, 
the beard, kind of making yeah. the form of that uh, spirit over matter. The and wings. the ram was also associated with fire and Agni, the spirits of fire. And so again, we have that that sense of fire and earth and that renewal of the earth kind of theme, as well as the ram being associated with the creator god, um, the Egyptian ram-headed god, Knum, who formed the uh, universe on his he was a potter and he, he formed the universe out of clay or some say he formed the universe out of a single egg. So what about the wings behind the ram head? Well, in the description, it's a winged ram head. Oh, okay. So that's just part of the crest. But there's mm-hmm. four, which I think is appropriate for this card. You know, four wings, the idea of the four elements all coming together into one. Like the other court cards, they're they're kind of elementally colored, but this, this card has a special thing going on because it's the colors of Malkut, the colors of Earth, yes, the colors so the four colors of Malkut are citrine, olive, russet, and black. The reason that's interesting is because the, the way those colors are derived are they're combinations of the three prior elements fire, water, and air and also the the triad of uh, Sephiroth above Malkut. Um, we have the green of Netzach, the orange of Hod, and the purple-violet of Yisod. And yeah. so if you combine orange and green, you get the citrine. If you combine orange and purple, you get the russet. If mm-hmm. you combine green and purple, you get the olive. And those are the three colors. And then if you mix them all together, you get black, the fourth color of Malkut. That's cool, isn't it? It is. It's kind of really interesting. And mm-hmm. then the, the Earth of Earth color, the Malkut of Malkut color, is said to be a black, raid yellow. And you see that in this card below the ram's head, that kind of black fading into yellow. So mm-hmm. be, being raided by yellow, which is another way of saying that the earth black is being warmed by the sun yellow or fertilized by the sun yellow right. or that idea of earth and fire again, black and yellow the black of Binah, and then the being having within it the yellow of Tiferet or being pregnant with the sun or the sun. So that is that is solar disk behind her? Yeah, it's a disk behind her standing up, and then there's the actual rising or setting sun mm-hmm. behind her. And it could be either, you know, it could be mm-hmm. setting as this is the end of the day, this is the end of the accumulation, this is the end of all things, the end of everything, but there could also be the rising sun, that sense of new birth, new life, new growth, her pregnancy as well. So it's kind of got that dual meaning going on, that whole idea of incarnation that's inherent in the symbol of the rising sun, but also the the death that's inherent in, in incarnation. Because mm-hmm. the sun's going to set as as well. Do you I kind of cons- see her as kind of an Axis Mundi figure too? She's like that pillar. Mm-hmm. She's standing in Malkut, looking up at Keter. You know, the pillar of the world. Mm. Yeah, and it's sort of like she can be the Axis Mundi in the same way that the universe is the Anima Mundi. Yeah. So, do you conceive of her as floating or standing? Both. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so her feet look it does look like she's floating above the earth just like mm-hmm. that pentacle is mysteriously floating in the the right yeah. weight uh page's hands she's kind of got this ethereal quality but yet you could also look at it as her her feet are touching the ground but maybe they aren't you know yeah so that is uh on purpose ambiguous yeah it's got mm-hmm. this kind of it adds that that quality of it's either or and both that 
makes the card kind of vibrate. Yeah, because princesses are, you know, firmly established. They are a foundation gathering the force oh, of yeah, all that, that came yeah, before. It reminds me, I got to say my absolute favorite quote whatsoever. Oh, yes. When, uh, it talks about how um, this idea of the divine name being a course of will, love, beauty, leading to silence and action says she's got to be manifested as a daughter of wisdom and understanding or will and love you're talking about the supernals there betrothed of beauty or reason we're talking about tiferet there and then indeed her power is mighty and terrible a temple rightly builded and a throne for the forces of spirit but my favorite quote is that says after woe unto whomsoever shall make war upon her when thus firmly established <laughs> <laughs> I love saying that. I really yes, do. I love that concept that she needs nothing, right? She She's um, complete unto herself. Right. She needs no horse for momentum, no chariot for power, no throne for stability, no armor for protection. That's Force, right. Force, form, beauty is inherent within her. She's magical. That's why she doesn't need any of that shit. <laughs> That's right. She's got it all. What about her, um, the way she's standing, the posture? Where did you, what was the inspiration for that? Oh, uh, you know, I believe that the actual posture is, was a moldy, moldy, moldy old statue of a nymph. And I just loved it. <laughs> <laughs> so something that you saw or something that you own? Yeah, something that I saw. And I was just like, mm -hmm. oh, there's my princess of discs. She just... It was this like kind of nymph, and it, it was an old statue. I don't even know mm -hmm. if it was of any particular god or goddess, or was just a, just a nymph. Or it wasn't marked. I don't know mm -hmm. what it was. And um, yeah, I was going to say that it just looks like it had a... that vibe. That it almost had that you know Virgin Mary in a bathtub vibe because it yeah. was kind of like encased in a little shrine, and it was just like I'm like oh. I just loved the posture, honestly, and said, oh, there's that a looks very like the classical pose about it. And also sort of like a moment of interiority in the physical expression of her body. You know, they're sort of like, you don't do that unless you're taking a moment to think, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah it's yeah, just yeah. something that felt very right about it. You know how it is when you, you get that moment of inspiration. It was like that, seeing that, you know, that moldy old statue. I was like, oh, <laughs> there she is. Yeah, oh. inevitable. <laughs> yeah. People should know that you have... I think a an essay on the princess of discs or on the princesses generally actually. Well, you know, yeah, that's a good idea. Uh, so if you're looking I sh I don't know if I should repost it or just put up a new link. Maybe I'll put up a link to it. New link, yeah. I've met, we've mentioned it before in another episode, but if you are looking for it, if you don't if you're not on the Patreon and you don't see a link there, you can go to my website at tabulamundi.com and search for it. The, the name of the article is Between Heaven and Earth because it it's kind of talks about this idea of the princess of discs as us on our journey as being, you know, the this, this being standing between the heavens and the earth with our feet firmly planted yet our heads up in the heavens and this idea that we're the conduit of, of chi in the Eastern sense. Yeah, and sometimes I actually think of this card, particularly when I'm using your deck, I'll think of it as kind of a significator, you know, even though yep. it's not astrologically connected to me or anything, I'll just think of it as that way, because I know that that was some of the process that you went through behind the creation of it. If you look at this card and compare it to the Ace of Discs, you'll see visually some of the same images and themes in that the hills 
that she's standing on oh, are, yeah. are the, the hills of Malkut, similar to as seen in the the Ace of Discs with the little crocodile eyes peeking yeah. out. Yeah, love those Sobek eyes. And then in the there. um the disc behind her is also shown on the Ace of Discs, but here it's got just the Babylon wording on it and not all the stuff that's going on in the Ace. Yeah, and what's interesting about that also is that. In the word Babylon, in the princess of Dis, the alpha is obscured by the form of the princess. It's like she's yes. pregnant with it, the alpha, the, she's the fool. Pregnant with the fool, exactly. Right. You got it. <laughs> That's so <Yep>. cool. <laughs> it's kind of like she's, you know, that whole idea of beginnings and endings. She, it's a card for me that symbolizes the utmost highest human potential. That we start here at the lowest of the lowest, but we all can aspire to the highest of the high process of, you know, maturation and growth. That's what it's all about. You know, fulfillment of the, the true will, discovering it and fulfilling it. But also, conversely, I think it's also true, and this is part of the message of the card, that we are complete already. Yes, right. We just have to unto wake ourselves. up. And, you know, that's the whole awakening, the marriage to the prince that as as a kind of a sleeping beauty story, a symbol of awakening, having that discovery of one's true will that's already inherent within, you know, it's the sun inside of us that's already here. We just have to wake up and discover it. Yeah, I think that that maybe is a metaphor for individuation itself. It's the recognition yes. that we are complete, that all our potential is within us, but it must recognize itself. That is the meeting between the prince and the princess, the recognition of the holy guardian angel, um, the idea that you see your own completion and beauty and are at one and at peace with it. And it's, it, you know, you notice that in the book of Thoth, when Crowley ends this card, he ends with that whole, he acts like he's ending the entire book and he, and he gives that great quote about, you know, the summum bonum and performing the true will. And he ends it there. Like, with yeah, that let's, stop. let's read that just to, since it's the last, <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll, I have it right here. I'll just read it okay, real quick. Go for uh, it. Let every student of this essay and of this book of Tahuti, this living book that guides man through all time and leads him to eternity at every page, hold fast the simplest, most far reaching doctrine in his heart and mind, inflaming the inmost of his being that he also having explored each recess of the universe may therein find the light of truth so come to the knowledge and conversation of the holy guardian angel and accomplish the great work attain the summum bonum true wisdom and perfect happiness <laughs> one yes, sentence indeed. in which every single noun is capitalized <laughs> may we all get there you indeed. know that that's great and I found another poem that I was reading when I was looking up, you know, re stuff for the show on Malkut. I found a great poem in the Malkut chapter of John John Bonham, <laughs> John John Bonner's book on the Kabbalah. John Bonham. Well, John Bonham is kind of earthy too, the way he slammed the, the drum kit. But um, anyway, that's that's beside the point. John Bonner's book on the Kabbalah in the Malkut chapter, I found this poem that, you know, he was posting it for Malkut, but it, to me, it was like so perfect for this card. It was a uh, William Wordsworth poem called Crossing the Alps. Tumult and peace, the darkness and the light, were all like workings of one mind. 
the features of the same face, blossoms upon one tree, characters of the great apocalypse, the types and symbols of eternity, of first and last and midst without end. Gorgeous. Is she, is she someone who shows up for you much? All the time. Really? That's cool. Yeah, I get her a lot. Mm-hmm. I kind of identify with this card, you know, yeah. out of out of all the court cards, this is probably the one I identify with for whatever reason I always have. Maybe because I have connected. both the superiority and inferiority complex. <laughs> but also, wouldn't you say the universe? I mean, the babe and the egg of blue? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, those two. I mean, they are related. Yep, they sure are. <laughs> and if you actually looking at, I'm looking at your universe and your princess of disc, there's sort of a, I don't know, there's there's definitely a family connection between them. Yeah, you can see it, huh? The posture yep. and the ha- and the horns <laughs> yep. and the hair. I don't know. Yeah, something the, about it. there's yeah. something there's something about the form that is reminiscent of the universe maiden for sure. Yeah, appropriately so. Yeah. So, what is her message for you usually? Boy, it's pretty complex, but I sometimes take it as being endings and deaths, but also as beginnings and births and fulfillment and culmination of things, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So she'll show up for all of those. Yeah. And even if it, mm-hmm. even if it seems to indicate something ending, it's never a negative thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. I do know what you mean. It's the ending that is completion and then renewal. There's a rightness to the season, I think, with this sort of things done in their right time and completed in their right time. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Interesting. How about you? Do you get her? I don't get her as much. Of course, every card I get some, but the ones that I've gotten her for are super apropos, though. Um, for example, like I had a spate of getting her last year where I just kept falling asleep <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> for, for different She's reasons. Beauty. Like, there was one last year, I had just come back from Singapore, I was totally jet-lagged, I took my daughter to her fencing class, and I fell asleep in the utility closet. (laughs) (laughs) I was just so tired. I have a lot of sort of indications of being sleepy, uh, helping the kids and being tired. And then I had one last September, it was after you and I recorded the marathon Ace of Swords episode. I fell asleep while watching Hodorowsky's Holy Mountain. (laughs) Oh, how perfect. I mean, how perfect is that, right? <laughs> yeah, the mountain and the falling asleep and the sort of alchemical shit into gold story. Yep, yeah, and the holy. Was... Yes, the holy of holies. <laughs> and then uh, I've had her agriculturally a lot, like ordering seeds, raking leaves, planting potatoes. And also a day that I, I took my daughter to the bulb show at Smith, so... Something about mm-hmm. bulbs and daughters and flowers and that sort of thing. It was also in that time of year. I think it might be a good um, if people wanted to refresh a little. I think they would get a lot out of listening to the universe episode in conjunction with this episode because I agree. of the connections. Yeah, there's a lot of overlap in terms of the import, the mm. significance of the card. I'd say that's true. It's definitely a card that feels special when I get it, but not one that I... I see all that often. Oh, and then there was, um, this is a bit sad, but, you know, so since my dad passed this last week, I had spent a lot of time on vigil. It was about a two-week process for us um, 
while he was in hospice. And I got this card one day and it was, you know, I actually spent most of the day trying to research and understand burial practices, funerary practices, and the journey of the soul after death. So, Mm -hmm. you know, and that that both the sort of interiority of that experience and the subject matter seemed really in line yep. with the card, yep. if you know what I mean. It is. So, you know, she can be there right at the beginning and right at the end and be a friend to you in all respects. The beginning, the end, and the middle. <laughs> it's true. She's everything and nothing. The end of all things. The summum bonum and the prima materia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The 10,000 things and the one thing. I think we started our sum up. <laughs> well, we definitely did. We got a long, we got a lot to sum up. Unless we just we say, do. it's everything. And look at the, here's, it's the corded cross here. <laughs> I know, seriously, if this were a video instead of audio, we would just like put the quartered cross there and be done with it. <laughs> and have silence. <laughs> a moment of silence. Yes, Exactly. All right, so uh, Princess of the Echoing Hills, Rose of the Palace of Earth, Gnomes, Thrones, all of that. The most magical of cards in her way. Mm, um, the highest and the lowest. We talked about her connection with the her counterpart, the Princess of Wands, both roses of fire and earth. Right, we talked about her connection with all sorts of cards, including death, the fool, the sun, the universe, the hierophant, the emperor, <laughs> the lovers, the prince of discs, the knight of wands, the prince of swords, as air of air, fire of fire, well, queen of cups as water of water, the fool, the ace of wands, the ace of discs, the queen of discs, <laughs> the ten of discs, the cards of the middle pillar universe are priestess and the nine minors associated with her three mm-hmm. signs. So, you know, I think what somebody should do is like do a diagram where they put all with of circles those, and arrows yeah with pins and string or whatever and uh, put every all of those cards and then take all of the rest of the cards in the deck and find the connections where they can add them to because you can do a whole map i know you can do it i, I just haven't tried yep. and uh, that would be cool i don't want to do it but somebody should <laughs> <laughs> right i, I could Oh, yeah. I can find a pattern in anything. <laughs> I can too. I just can't find a place to put it. <laughs> yeah, right. I know. You need like a wall-sized whiteboard. Exactly. Or just on the floor. But who wants to do that? Because then it'll get walked over. But yeah, yeah, you can totally do it. And oh, in fact, there are many cards that have multiple connections. Um, oh, yeah. The Empress. The we didn't men- we, we talked about it in the episode, but the Empress is another one with a connection as well as the, uh, right. the gate of the daughter of the mighty ones. And the ruler of Taurus, the center of her yep. um, quadrant. Yep. Speaking of which, we talked about those three quadrants, Aries, Taurus, Gemini, those 90 degrees of the circle. And we talked a lot about the meanings behind those sets of threes, the idea of theory, application, and analysis, the idea of the these breaking the ground, the planting the seed, the seed coming up to air in that sort of fire, earth, air sequence. Right. The, the germinating power of silence, you know, the idea that the seed germinates in silence too. That's right. And the idea that this is um, also, you could recapitulate the Eden story in there. You could also trace the uh, arc from creation through yep, teaching, the seventh day of will. rest. Where mm-hmm. God is made visible by his works. Mm-hmm. We talked about Caput Draconis, Rahu the dragon's head. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, hexagram 52, gun, keeping still, mountain over mountain. We talked about the Shekinah as Malka, queen, and Kala, bride, Malkut in Asiya, the maid world, coterminous with Malkut, the kingdom. We talked about the symbols of Malkut, the mystic circle that the magician stands in, the equal-armed cross that is also the Tau cross, that is also the spinning swastika as the fool. We talked about the <laughs> double-cube altar that Malkuth as the altar for spirit to descend upon, black outside, white inside, Malkut and Keter, Malkut as the dark twin of Keter, and the triangle of art or evocation for the spirit to be evoked into. And we talked about the hero Judas Maccabeus, 2nd century BCE, uh, sacred warrior. We talked about Lancelot, the magical and perfect knight, except for his fall uh, in the form of his dissipation and prodigality and adultery. We talked about the nickname Pam, meaning Pamphilus or Pamphilus, friend of all, the predecessor of the joker or fool. We talked about the fool as the child this princess bears within her, um, bearing the beginning of all things in the end. We talked about the upside-down tree and the fruit as being what holds up the tree and culminates in the root, or that starts at Keter in the root and flowers and fruits in Malkut. Uh, We talked about the tip of the yod as the first letter of the divine name and um, the association with Malkut as the last letter of the divine name or this card i should say as the last letter of the divine name earth of earth or hey final of hey final the tip of the scepter as the diamond head of keter penetrating into the next world Uh, yeah just as the roots are penetrating into the earth in the thoth card and the yin and the yang are intertwined with a little bit of each in each yeah the equation the audit of the equation of zero equals two the yin and the yang the complexity of malkut versus the simplicity of keter the priestess of Demeter and the Eleusinian mysteries, symbolic of the rebirth of all life, the descent, the search, and the ascent, and the culmination of an ear of grain cut in silence. Uh, the cucao and the drug, the mixture, uh, the blend that's fermented grain that you take to pass beyond those realms in those rites. The idea of the grave as a womb and the womb as a grave and the birth inherent in death and the death inherent in birth. And we talked about Callisto, the nymph, uh, and the great bear in the sky. Mothers and daughters, princesses and queens, the awakening of the eld, the Babylon figure, the ultimate expression of femininity and womanhood. The strangeness that is her being able to be both permanent and non-existent at the same time. And the qualities of insensibility in a world of the senses, uh, the qualities of slumber and sleep. That she's both at the same time stable and erratic, permanent and volatile, or as Liber Theta says, an inertia of irresistible momentum. Okay, I think we've got it. I mean, there's probably more, but I think we... We have to stop somewhere. <laughs> yeah, we, there, there was tons more, but they, they can go back and listen more. to the beginning. Um, well, you know, or go back to episode zero and start all over again. <laughs> there you go. I think we can end with um, one quote, and that is, to the mind that is still, the entire universe surrenders. That's lovely. To will, to dare, to know, to keep silent, and then to go. So, yes, this has been... 
the final card in our sequence of 78 cards. The end of all things the and end the beginning of, of something yeah. else. We are actually both, you know, locked in our own houses. It's There's snow on the ground and we're Skyping this. And so it's... it's and it's kind like of... three degrees out or minus three <laughs> yes, degrees. Yes, exactly. So we have to have faith that spring will come, but it will. It's been an incredible year and a half journey. It's really, I never quite expected it to turn out this way. The friends we've made and the and the connections we've made, it feels like a great work is complete. Yeah, indeed. It's been quite the journey. So we will... And we persevered. <laughs> we did. We did. Somehow. <laughs> we didn't miss a single week. Uh, and we managed to get it out continuously over the course of 78 weeks, despite many things happening in both our lives. Thank you so much for going on this journey with us. We hope to be back next time with more treasures from the Wheelhouse of Fortune after a brief pause. See you whenever that is.